G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and welcome to Lockdown, Character Strengths and Silver Linings, your guide to applying positive psychology in seclusion. I'm joined again today by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey. Dad, how are you doing today? Good, thanks Rowan. Good to be with you again. Yeah, absolutely. And dad, 10 episodes now. So... Look, it's a very important subject today because it's something that relates to a whole range of psychological problems, but we've called today's episode Addressing Avoidance. So Dad, why have we called today's episode Addressing Avoidance? Well, avoidant reactions and avoidant tendencies come up very commonly in a private practice setting when people are seeking help. And we'll talk later on about what avoidant personality is, for example, but um, it's very relevant for our psychological functioning generally because it's natural for us to want to avoid challenging situations or fearful situations or sometimes shy away from a challenge or feel we don't have energy to tackle a certain situation. But then it can become a little bit more either entrenched or habitual or whatever and when we then get caught up in more general patterns of avoiding challenges or avoiding facing situations then we're more risk of developing certain phobic reactions we can get more stuck with trauma reactions and there are also some personality patterns related to social anxiety and avoidance that can really limit people's everyday lives in some way. I imagine there's going to be some ways that some level of avoidance is actually a healthy thing. If I think of risk-taking behaviours, for example, might be good sometimes to avoid a little bit of that. So in psychology, what do we consider to be avoidance? Okay, well, avoidance often involves a certain level of anxiety. For example, phobic anxiety. More obvious examples would be if people are avoiding heights or enclosed spaces or with social anxiety, avoiding going into social situations that the person might find challenging. The essence of phobic anxiety is where people have what they recognise as an exaggerated fear and where they tend to over-avoid a number of situations which limits their life in some way. And I think also psychologically we would refer to avoidance and numbing as when people are maybe not processing their feelings so much. For example, that they're not acknowledging that they're feeling challenged by a particular situation or they're not addressing a certain emotional problem that they have. They might be emotionally burying their head in the sand and that might be a level of avoidance as well. So... As you mentioned that there, I wondered the degree to which, you know, like many things, avoidance is almost a bit like a spectrum in the sense of, to some degree, everyone's going to have their own elements of avoidance in their own life, whether it's, you know, things they might be scared of and sort of look to steer clear of a little bit more. But how do we almost consider something a disorder? Is there a particular threshold that we get to where we sort of say, okay, now it's getting to the stage where it's inhibiting your life enough to call it a disorder? Or how do we work out someone's level of avoidance and the degree to which it's impacting on their life? Okay, mainly a disorder is a term that we use or apply when a person's distress is very marked. So they go through so much distress that it's really interfering with their life or that some difficulties that they're having, psychological difficulties are interfering with their functioning in different aspects of their life. It might be in their work or family relationships or their general well-being where it's interfering to such extent 
that it's worth addressing as a significant problem. So there's an element of subjectivity, but it's generally either the level of distress or symptoms that come with it, or it's interfering with people's goals in life to a significant degree. One thing I find really interesting on this topic is, you know, in the in the almost kind of digital media world that I find myself in, you get people like, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk and Tony Robbins and these almost motivational type speakers. And as we were talking about this subject, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this a little bit too, because it almost led me to realise that one of the major things that they actually do is help people get over their avoidance. And, you know, I look at Gary V, for example, he's someone who he can almost be quite terse in his, uh, in his sort of manner at times and the way that he comes across. But he's very much just, you know, why aren't you doing it? You know, get off your bum. Stop that. You know, these are your limiting beliefs. But once you recognise them to be that, that's all they become sort of thing. So I wonder to what degree, as we see these sort of movements gain huge momentum, to what degree everyone's almost suffering with a little bit of avoidance or at least there's a huge amount of people who are suffering with these avoidant tendencies and people like Gary V, Tony Robbins come in and sort of help them do that. So could you almost argue on some level that everyone has a bit of an avoidant personality disorder? Like how do we discern that someone is really kind of disordered in their current functioning as opposed to, for example, they may not be getting the most out of themselves because of avoidant tendencies? Okay, well, look, shortly might talk about, say, avoidant personality disorder as an actual kind of personality pattern that people can have more entrenched difficulties with avoidance. But I think generally what you're bringing up there shows how, look, it's difficult for many of us to really put ourselves forward in different ways, taking on various challenges in life. There are risks involved in taking on challenges. People might be, well, starting a new relationship, shifting job, entering a sporting competition. These are naturally challenging situations and they bring up the most common kind of fears that most of us would relate to, some level of fears of failure, fears of disapproval and fears of discomfort. Now when you think of it, these are going to be somewhat universal fears because we go back say 20,000 years, if you didn't have a fear of disapproval and then got rejected by your tribe, you'd be expelled from the tribe and you'd die. If you didn't have a fear of failure, You couldn't care whether you were able to hunt an animal and bring back meat and food for your tribe or whether you found bush potatoes and other food for people to eat, you would die. Also, if we didn't have a fear of discomfort, if we had some kind of injury or pain and just ignored it, then that would have been at great risk to our life. So these kinds of very common fears, fears of approval, failure, discomfort tend to be somewhat built in or hardwired to a degree, but in modern life, these fears are often exaggerated. Our fear of failure might stop us from taking a really worthwhile risk. Our fear of disapproval might lead us to not speak up or put ourselves forward in a certain situation, and our fear of discomfort might mean that we don't take on a certain challenge that's worth doing. So in modern life, this is where people tend to run into difficulty when these fears become exaggerated or when people respond to these fears by avoiding worthwhile situations. One thing that that leads me to think about there is something that mum talks about a little bit actually is this idea of a dominant question. 
And your dominant question, it could be something positive or it could be something negative, but essentially it's like that deep fundamental question that we ask ourselves that so many other questions that we ask ourselves throughout the day stem off. So, for example, I think the classic one that's come up recently is uh, Michael Jordan. So I assume Michael Jordan's would have been something along the lines of, how can I be the best version of myself in order to best help my team win or something like that? Or Jim Quick, the guy who came up with this idea of the dominant question, he works with Will Smith, the actor, and he remembers being on set with Will Smith at, you know, three in the morning. They're sort of filming super late into the night and Will Smith is there with all this energy, being able to, you know, offer someone a coffee, offering someone a blanket, all this sort of stuff. And through chatting to Will Smith, he worked out that Will Smith's dominant question was, how can I make this moment more magical? So clearly in having such a positive dominant question, Will Smith was able to get so much more energy and motivation out of that. So I wonder to what degree avoidant personality disorders has something to do with when someone's dominant question maybe leans towards the way of being a bit more negative or being a bit more one of these kind of broad anxieties that we experience. I wonder to what degree that overlap has something to do with an avoidant personality disorder. Okay, well, I suppose this gets back to deeper beliefs and ways of viewing the world, but to take that dominant question idea, I think many people with strong avoidant tendencies where it becomes really part of their personality functioning have a basic kind of question of, do I belong? And I want to belong. Now, it's natural, again, that you know human beings, we're tribal kind of animals and all the rest of it, we're like herd animals in a certain kind of way, so it's understandable that that's a key thing. But if that becomes so dominant that the person's really concerned about, am I clever enough, or they think, I'm not smart enough, I'm not attractive enough, I'm not capable enough, if people really get to know me, then they would reject me. You know, deep down, I'm, I'm not enough. If people are then looking for evidence of other people, whether they're accepting them or more likely looking for evidence of other people rejecting them, then it's natural that people are going to shy away from that disapproval and become more avoidant. But it means that they're less likely to show up in different aspects of their lives, You know, show up and put themselves forward for a project that they might tackle or a risk that they might take or a friendship that they might start or something like that. And so when we talk about avoidant personality tendencies, it tends to be based on these underlying beliefs related to social anxiety, but more deeply entrenched about whether I belong, whether I'm acceptable, whether people would disapprove of me or not. So how do we discern between someone who has avoidant tendencies, which may be impacting on their life in some ways, but it may not be fully at the point where we describe it as disordered yet? Okay, well, from a clinical point of view, what we notice is that there are certain patterns of behaviour, well, actually, that we define as avoidant personality disorder, and there's certain characteristics. I'll actually read them out because it'll give people more of a flavour of what we're talking about with avoidant personality. It's when people have at least four of these characteristics that have applied throughout their adult life in a range of situations, not just at work or in a social situation, across a range of situations. It's when people avoid work activities that involve significant interpersonal contact. 
So they might knock back a promotion if it means that they're going to supervise a few people because they're concerned about the disapproval they might get from the people they supervise. Or being unwilling to get involved with people unless you're certain of being liked. For example, people might have certain ways of looking to whether other people seem to like them first before they let that other person get to know them more. And so they tend to avoid going into relationships further without that kind of greater affirmation. It's also showing restraint in intimate relationships, so not expressing one's feelings so much. It can be being preoccupied with being criticised or rejected. It can be being inhibited in new social situations because of feelings of inadequacy. Now, most of us might feel a bit hesitant going into a new social situation, but it tends to be more marked and based on this fear of inadequacy. Or the person views themselves, not that they should, as inept or unappealing or inferior. And a final pattern is where people are unusually reluctant to take personal risks or involve themselves in new activities that might be embarrassing. For example, if there is a work Christmas party and people are like mucking around a little bit and making fools of themselves a bit, it might be hard to do that. So it's when people have four of those characteristics I described, that would be an avoidant personality disorder by definition. It's just 1% of the general population would have those patterns to that degree, but it's about 10% of people who front up to some kind of mental health service like our private practice and that's one reason why we're covering that in this podcast episode because it's actually more frequent than people are aware of and it can actually really help to identify this pattern when it's there because if people have this pattern they're more likely to become depressed again and again or have extra difficulties with anxiety that hangs around for a longer time or have more difficulty getting over trauma reactions because the avoidance in itself tends to stand in the way of people getting what they want in life, relationships, work, opportunities, and so people are more likely to become depressed or stay depressed for longer. So it seems to me that Avoidance really relates to almost this layering idea that we've spoken about on previous podcasts where you may have an initial psychological problem and then in almost protecting yourself from the intensity or from such direct contact with that problem, that's where things like avoidant personality tendencies and then disorder can come from. Yes, look, I think there's a lot of truth in that. For example, with trauma reactions, as we've talked about in recent episodes, people don't just develop a post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, but there can also be depression and substance abuse that goes with it. But one of the more common personality difficulties that can follow on from chronic trauma is avoidant personality because people might get in a pattern of avoiding social situations, which is one of the symptoms of PTSD, but it might become more entrenched. And they might not be processing their emotions so much to the point where they really block out their emotions so much that it becomes more avoidant. We've also talked about in the dissociation episode about how dissociation avoids a kind of buffering from pain. But if that becomes very established, also that overlaps with patterns of avoidant personality or, or can do. We talked earlier about conflict and ways of dealing with conflict in episode three. 
And when people, for example, shy away from conflict, adopting a more passive or accommodating kind of style, going overboard in that direction, that can also lead to avoidant personality functioning. So yes, it can be an extension of patterns that show up with say, more exaggerated phobic anxiety. So we say some people have social anxiety. They might be concerned about, uh, for example, blushing in front of other people or their hand shaking if they're eating in front of other people. That's a reaction that people can have. But if it becomes more generalised and across a whole range of situations where people are concerned about other people's approval or looking stupid or whatever, then it can become more entrenched and become more of this avoidant personality pattern. And so how do we actually address avoidance? Well, look, one of the things which is tough, but one of the things which is hopeful, is that of all the personality disorders that we tend to identify, this is one where, look, the proof's in the pudding. You can demonstrate that you're countering avoidance or addressing avoidance or, or making progress with avoidance if you're not avoiding so much, if you're facing a range of situations. Now, that's easier said than done because people are actually inviting more discomfort into their lives. And when we're, for example, assessing someone or working with someone, trying to help someone with depression or anxiety reactions or whatever, and we identify this pattern of avoidance, it actually helps the person realise, you know, bring out to light that this is a more general pattern that they need to tackle. But basically, there are two things that people need to do. One is to go out of the comfort zone. To go out of the comfort zone bit by bit to look to put themselves a little bit more forward in social situations, take a few more risks, speak up a little bit more, acknowledge their emotions a little bit more, just by people not avoiding so much. It's a very behavioural thing. You can see the progress that people are making, but that's uncomfortable to do. So to keep going that way, this is the other key thing, people need to learn to give themselves a pat on the back. They need to encourage themselves for taking these uncomfortable steps. We'll talk about more of this later, but that's actually the biggest challenge I find for people with avoidant tendencies. They tend to have a pattern of undermining themselves or not acknowledging their positive efforts. They might do something constructive, go out of the comfort zone, maybe go for a job interview or look to speak up in a challenging situation. And maybe if it doesn't go completely well, or even if it does go okay, often people are not giving themselves the acknowledgement A key thing with avoidant personality is people not just going out of the comfort zone, but giving themselves encouragement to keep on going, keep on taking these steps. Well, I think if someone is avoidant, they're potentially thinking so broadly about things that it can be really hard to apprehend things at a micro level, if that makes sense. And like, if you've got such a broad question in your mind as why don't people like me, for example, we'll take that as an example. You may be encountering all these positive interactions, all these positive things that you're doing throughout the day that may not directly relate to this question that you have in your mind, which can lead you to ignore it sort of thing. So I wonder if that's a subtle way that avoidance can almost breed more avoidance because you have less opportunities to practice the highs and the lows of of sort of human life, if that makes sense. So Because you've got more time to think about things, it leads you to almost take a more broad perspective on it, which then makes it harder to recognise some of the positive things in your day or makes it harder to recognise some of the things that you're grateful for. 
Yes, I think part of what you're getting at too is how people can get caught up with this global thinking, the global thinking, do I belong, I'm not clever, I'm not attractive, this kind of thinking. It's part of in positive psychology what people would also describe as a fixed mindset, this fixed global kind of thinking as opposed to a growth mindset, which I think that you're getting at. If people take more of a micro level or think of what can I do now or what can I do tomorrow or in the next day or what's a task that I can tackle and you break it down to something small enough that you think is doable, well, I will have a go at this particular situation. I will join this sporting club, for example, and see how I go or I'll speak up the next time I'm with my group of friends about what I think about something. These might seem like little steps, but they're significant steps. and They're part of a growth mindset, as you say, practising. If we actually put ourselves forward, put ourselves on the map, so to speak, then we are practising different things and also we're more likely to get some evidence that we have done something half well or was somewhat enjoyable or people actually did respond somewhat positively to what we did. So, yeah, that's the idea of putting ourselves on the map and being prepared to do little things and see that as symbolically meaningful. Well, one thing that I've almost thought a little bit about, and I haven't really sort of spoken to too many people about this, but uh, in many ways... I almost think that, like, for me, podcasting almost kind of saved my life in some ways. And the reason for that is, like, when I was going through periods of depression and and feeling very negative about things, and, look, I I think I was certainly quite avoidant at times. And the one thing that I suppose got me out of that and got me to stop just questioning things sort of every day in your own head was starting a podcast. For me, it was my first podcast was sort of, I'd ask people, you know, when you're a kid, what did you want to be when you grow up? And then we sort of talk about what they did do. But for me, that was almost an exercise where I could go, all right, I've just got carte blanche here. I just need something where I'm not going to necessarily be held back by anyone else's sort of idea of what you have to do. And I'll just sort of see where it goes. And after time, I started to sort of realise the direction that I was going in. There was a certain subgenre of people that I was maybe more interested in interviewing but it was only in that exercise of I suppose having something tangible that I was able to really explore that a little bit more. Yes and one thing that strikes me as you put it that way is I really like the way that you your podcast which I think was called I'm Loving Your Work yeah. Yeah, and you'd be interviewing people that you admired something that they'd done in their work or whatever but in a way you were embracing the darker side of things or the challenge of maybe being unsure of what your own work direction might be and like many people have that like these days the world is more complex many young adults not just young adults but many young adults in particular are going to be wondering a lot about how might I do things in future and our job and career paths aren't quite as clear cut for many people these days but in the end that's a great example of addressing avoidance if you like you kind of embraced the question of well I'm not sure what maybe direction to go in but let's explore that in a way that might be meaningful to other people as well and then you find that you're drawing on your own strengths and your own interests and actually finding there's this creative enterprise where strangely enough you were developing a a work and career direction while you were wondering what do I do when I've got no idea with my career direction. Well yeah and like this is something that I've actually had a few chats with friends about who may have similar questions for themselves and one thing that I almost suggest to them 
you know, straight off the bat is start a newsletter. And even if you don't send it out to anyone, you might send it to your mum, dad and uncle Fred. But all it is is 250 words that you spend once a month. Maybe you spend two showers a week thinking about it. There's ways of not necessarily encumbering yourself beyond something that you're going to be able to commit to. But at the same time, it's just a little exercise where it's up to you to decide what you put into that. So over the course of a month or two months, you're going to see, all right, maybe I didn't send out six of them. Why was that? What are the subjects that I've included in that? Are they related to what I'm doing? And I guess the biggest thing that I think that relates to this is that notion that you can't see over the horizon. And the thing about avoidance is it really leads you to want the answer to so many questions and the answer to some of these broader questions. But the catch-22 is that it's harder to get there with avoidant tendencies. So in doing something like starting a newsletter, starting a podcast, writing five dot points once a week that you don't send to anyone else, say you have a goal to do it for six months, we get one month down the line and realize, well, actually what I considered to be a six-month process is actually three months or it's actually nine months. But the further down the line that you go, the more momentum that you build, the more that you're able to see an actual pathway that it's not just something in your head, it's something that could be a lot more realistic now. So that's why, yeah, I think in terms of countering avoidance, just launching into something, however small, whatever it is, and then working up for there is something that I really found helped me. Yes, and I can see where if someone has that capacity and interest in creativity, in perspective, certain character strengths will come into that, then expressing yourself in any way, putting yourself on the map in any way is a wonderful way of addressing or countering avoidance. But look, I could say it can be more simple than that in some other ways as well. Like if people speak up with a group of friends or ask for a friend to join them on a social occasion, or certainly if people apply for for any job or people are engaged in work roles by definition you're doing something which is of benefit to other people in some ways just putting ourselves forward putting ourselves on the map appreciating the kind of things that we do that make a difference to other people that's all part of addressing avoidance as well so Really, when it boils down to it, it's any way that we interact with other people where we do things that give us a sense of achievement or pleasure. It's basically partly living, doing things, activities of daily life that are beneficial to us. Now, with all this sort of stuff, it's definitely not sort of click your fingers and it's fixed, is it? It's not a matter of almost being exposed to psychoeducation about avoidance, understanding how it works and then going, well, I'm not going to do that. I certainly found that that was not the case for me. It was potentially a period of many years to even get to the point where I decided to sort of start that podcast. But in your experience, how easily are people able to transcend avoidant tendencies? Well, look, it's pretty tough because it is about going against the grain and facing more discomfort and all the rest of it. But this is how I would say it to clients where we might have met for a couple of sessions, we might have looked at how the person's experienced depression, how they experience a level of social anxiety or anxiety in different situations. And you get a sense that someone might have certain avoidant tendencies that we might explore basically using questionnaires that look at social anxiety and avoidance and when people do have those patterns that I described earlier look we don't sugarcoat it we basically say to someone look it seems that you have a pattern that we refer to as avoidant personality 
And what this means is not just experiencing social anxiety in different situations, but having certain patterns where you might avoid a range of situations to such an extent that you'll be missing out on some important things in life. And to tackle that, it means tackling your personality functioning, which tends to take you know, like say a couple of years to change. Like we'll explain it in terms of if you change your behaviour for just a few weeks, you've changed your behaviour, it might change back. If you've changed your behaviour for four months, you've changed a habit. If you've changed your behaviour for two years, you've changed your personality functioning. So basically we say to people, look, to counter these patterns, it means pushing yourself out of the comfort zone. It might be engaging in more social contact, it might be going for more job interviews, it might be dealing with conflict in a more direct way, the range of issues that we'll identify in the person's life. And we'll say that, like initially, we might see people weekly for a few weeks and then maybe fortnightly for another few weeks. So over a few months, we might have had a contact on about six occasions. And then we might meet, say, monthly through to every couple of months. And basically, we're conveying to people It's pushing yourself out of the comfort zone and keeping on doing that week after week, month after month, and over a period of four to six months, there'll be different changes that you might notice in certain ways, but you will be continuing to work on this over a couple of years. And then, then potentially beyond, but once people understand the notion of pushing themselves out of the comfort zone and acknowledging the benefits of that, then people commonly find they are engaging a little more in certain social situations. They might be taking a little bit more risk, healthy risk in their work. They might be going for a promotion or developing further skills or engaging in other kinds of challenges, sporting-wise or whatever. But look, I wonder if it might help if I give an example or two of how avoidance might show up. So one example is a lady who took up competitive cycling in her 50s and how it became clear that she likely had avoidant tendencies is she described this pattern where she was much better at cycling than she realised and in these bicycle races she'd be leading into the straight and then she'd end up coming forth. I'd ask her more about this and she said, well, after the first couple of times, well, one time she won And she realised she was going to end up on the podium in front of other people. Now that was so distressing, the thought of that to her, that she'd be winning these races all the way through the race and make sure she ended up fourth so she's not on a podium. That was a hint, well, more than a hint in that situation, that it might be more broad and we checked it out in other ways and she did have other avoidant personality patterns. Or it also might be people who've not been in a relationship for a long period of time or they might sort of a little bit of dating here or there, but they haven't really engaged in that. Or it might be someone who's in a job which is quite a bit below their level of ability, even though they would otherwise seem to have some level of ambition. You see these thwarted kind of goals that come up. And so you can imagine to change something like that, that's not going to be over a period of a few weeks or a few months. People can get momentum in dealing with these things and commonly over a few months they do get momentum but they need to keep going at it generally for a couple of years and then big things change new relationships new jobs more active social life you see the broad ways that people's lives can change when they tackle this on an ongoing basis 
as you were describing about that cyclist, it leads me to think, geez, I wouldn't mind sitting down with Greg Norman and having a bit of a chat about his avoidance because must be, there must be something in there for him to do what he did a couple of times. Yeah, well, one of the things I did sometimes wonder with Greg Norman, and certainly he would not have an avoidant personality because he's out there in front of the world's cameras kind of thing, but the thing that did strike me is at times when he lost when he was expected to win and he'd say something afterwards like how well he played and things like that when I thought maybe there's a level of subtle avoidance compared to acknowledging that maybe he did feel disappointed with how it had turned out and he was looking to address that in some way. That did cross my mind, but if that's the case, that would be what we would call a kind of subtle avoidance rather than a a more avoidant personality. One thing I wonder about with avoidance is because there is that layering aspect to it that we've spoken about, How do you discern whether to treat the avoidance in itself or maybe treat the underlying factor that leads to avoidance? Generally with treating avoidance, I have an approach which is quite pragmatic. It's encouraging people to go behavioural, to change the behaviour in itself. And so one example of that is with each person we'll work out what we call an exposure hierarchy. So if they have difficulty interacting with other people where they might be rejected, something that might represent a low level of anxiety might be inviting a friend to a movie or disagreeing with a friend. That might be sort of more like three or four out of ten on an anxiety scale. And then a moderate level of anxiety might be, for example, for some people it might be using a public toilet or otherwise asking someone to join them in their car travelling to work. And then at a higher part of the hierarchy, it might be a nine out of ten level of anxiety. It might be going for a job interview. And we get a list of about ten or a dozen different situations like that. And we encourage people to tackle things on the lower part of the hierarchy first and hopefully again learn to give themselves a pat on the back then approach things more in the middle of the hierarchy then things in the higher part of the hierarchy and then what happens is people realize that it's the situations that they've actually faced for example inviting someone to drive with them to work it's those things that say two months later When you look at the same exposure hierarchy, now they might not rate it a 7 out of 10, it might be a 4 out of 10. And they get used to the idea that when they've faced challenges a number of times, the things that they've done tend to involve lesser anxiety, they've been able to manage with that, and then even the thought of going for a job interview might no longer be a 9 out of 10, it might be a 7 out of 10, and people feel more ready to tackle that. So it's encouraging people to face challenging situations step by step. Some will come up naturally, and some people will set themselves the task. And then every couple of months or so, we might look at people rating their level of anxiety again, around that same challenge and then people generally get a sense of encouragement and encourages them to keep on going. And the other thing that we've sometimes done in the past that often worked very well was inviting people to join a group. Now with social anxiety we'd think that's the last thing that people would want to do but we called it a taking a step forward group to encourage this behavioural change, face challenging situations But also informally we called it a group for people who hate the idea of being in a group. And they get the joke about that. But amazingly, most people took up that offer. And people turned up to every session. They were very engaged with this group more than any other group that I've run because deep down people knew that they needed to tackle this underlying pattern of avoidance. 
And so they were heartened by the fact that there was something that they could do that often had at least some months of individual therapy beforehand where they'd seen some of the progress that they'd made, some of their anxiety ratings coming down, and then they realised this was like a next step and then they'd face that fear of joining a group of people, letting people get to know them a little bit more and facing directly that fear of rejection or disapproval. For many people, that was a powerfully helpful process. Well, that's interesting to hear because, as you say, there's something almost so kind of counterintuitive about using a group for people with social anxiety. But I wonder as well if one of the reasons a group works for avoidance is one of the things with avoidance is when we overcome it in some way or if we feel ourselves starting to overcome avoidance, there's almost like this feeling that we want to kind of tell people, you know, how we kind of went about it. And like, you know, I mentioned sort of Gary Vee and, and Tony Robbins and those sorts of people before, like I almost have a bit of a, a sort of controversial opinion that there's a few people in that industry who maybe sort of overcame some avoidance for themselves and sort of see it as this huge kind of epiphany. And so, you know, they've got to get that information out there without maybe realising that that was a little bit more individual to them. But in saying that, there are elements that we can take from other people's journeys. There are elements that we can take from whether it be people with similar character strengths to us, finding out ways that they've used their character strengths to get a little bit more pleasure or get the ball rolling and get the momentum started in some ways. So is it the case where potentially unlike other mental disorders where you may not necessarily want to... I suppose, spend a whole lot of time, say, with other people who are suffering with those conditions because it may further exacerbate it, is avoidance almost something that you encourage people to seek other people who have sort of patterns of avoidance or seek other people who have avoidant tendencies? Well, yes, certainly a big part of the benefit for people was having it witnessed, the progress that they'd made. But what struck me is there were two other elements that I think had an even bigger impact in some ways. The first was from when people were in the waiting room with others who were waiting for the same group and they figured these other people must be in the same group because they were there later in the evening after usual work hours and they could tell the people were sitting there waiting for something so they would notice the others around who they anticipated would be in the group and they looked normal. They were surprised by that because often people with avoidant tendencies and avoidant personality think that they will stand out in some ways as seeming inadequate or quite awkward in some way. So the first thing that happened, there's a little bit of a penny that started to drop when they'd say, well, these other people look normal, so maybe they look normal as well. Then they'd get up to the group room and we'd start off and they'd start hearing other people's stories and they'd relate to that and they'd think, well, this is remarkable. This person who seems resourceful or fairly articulate or reasonably capable in some ways, they're having some of the same difficulties that I am of making connections with other people or dealing with fears of rejection, that kind of thing. And so that would be, in a way, a bit affirming, realising that there were others who are like them. And again, the penny would drop a little bit that maybe they weren't as bad as they thought. And some people heard stories where people were even more, much more avoidant than they were, and they'd think, well, actually, I'm doing okay that I've got a job or I'm in a long-term relationship or whatever. That could be affirming as well. But the main way that people benefited from being with other people is they could see other people's achievements 
but often they couldn't see their own. It would become a group joke that someone would say about something they did and, and everyone else would say, oh, look, that's wonderful what you've done, that's so good and all the rest of it. But then it would come to someone else's turn and they'd say, oh, well, everyone else has done these things and I've done nothing in the last two weeks. And then it would turn out that they might have gone for a job interview or they might have had a very difficult conversation with a family member that they needed to have or that they invited someone to a social situation. It's as though they completely glossed over it or ignored it. And that becomes the group joke because they recognise this in other people, the tendency to not acknowledge the steps that they'd taken, to not give themselves a pat on the back. This became the group joke that they recognised that you know, they could see that in other people, but then they'd go on and do that themselves, just play down their achievements, ignore their achievements, and that's the element that people would get more in a group because they would start to see this pattern more starkly and then they'd realise that as they saw other people gradually struggling with this to give themselves a pat on the back, they would start to do that more themselves. And I'd say this is the key thing in therapy, whether it be an individual therapy or group therapy, there's going out of the comfort zone, but then it's giving yourself a pat on the back because it's too difficult to do and keep going especially for like say six months, 12 months, a couple of years, unless you find that internal way of giving yourself a pat on the back. That was the greatest thing. And then to have their achievements witnessed by others, if they'd got a new job, started a new relationship, bought a home, taken some kind of risk, that was a real celebration in the group and that would land more being in a group situation. So it seems to me from what we've spoken about today, if we look at this idea of an avoidant personality disorder, It's something that may have developed from avoidant tendencies, which everyone may experience, but it's something that seems to have really become ingrained over time. So when someone gets to the stage where they've really changed their personality functioning to be affected in a negative way by their avoidance, how realistic is it that someone will get to the stage where they have a more quote-unquote normal level of avoidance? Look, the way I tend to look at it is, I suppose, somewhat pragmatic again, and we measure people's progress partly from evaluating people's level of social anxiety and avoidance. And what we see is when people start therapy, then their reactions that way, their level of anxiety, social anxiety and avoidance is smack bang average for that clinical population. By the end of therapy which for many people include individual therapy and then some group therapy, or it might be an extended period of individual therapy over a year and a half or a couple of years, maybe with three-month follow-ups towards the end. But what you typically find is that people's reactions are on the border, if you like, between the non-clinical population and the clinical population, meaning it's become a more mild level. And I think that's the realistic way when people are tackling more entrenched or long-term difficulties. Often people make very significant progress, but it's a much more mild form of the disorder. And so how I see that happen is I might run into people in the street five years later and a number of people have started other businesses or they've got a job promotion or they've been in a new relationship or uh, someone I learned had become a godmother for someone else in the group who'd got married and had a child and that was delightful because both of them had been very socially isolated before their experience of therapy. So you see these broad changes that happen and dare I say people's 
functioning in the different roles in their life can improve substantially. But it's natural that people are going to have an extra level of social anxiety than the average person. And we don't look for that to completely change, but it's a much lesser impediment for many people in their everyday life. Well, it does seem to be coming a bit of a theme on the podcast in the sense that with this stuff, like a lot of things, the more that we can face it and the more that we can use our character strengths to give us the tools to be able to do that, the better off that we're going to be. So look, I'll just mention as well, episodes one and two are particularly going to be relevant for this stuff as well, aren't they, Dad? Because look, we don't want to necessarily repeat ourselves over and over again sort of thing. But in those episodes, we did go through the character strengths in a way that is really going to be relevant to addressing avoidant tendencies. So if there is anyone who maybe out there is wondering what some sort of next steps could be for them, certainly suggest going and listening to those episodes one and two and and hopefully you'll get something out of that in terms of implementing the character strengths in a bit more of a practical way. Yes, I think that some of the benefits of those first two episodes is acknowledging what's best in us, looking at the character strengths, that can help counter the unwarranted sense of inadequacy that many people have with avoidant tendencies. And I'd also add that episode three that looks at dealing with conflict Looking at constructive ways of dealing with conflict, including assertive ways of dealing with conflict, exploring that can be very helpful for many people in addressing avoidance. So as always, we'll put all the resources that are related to today's episode up on the episode pages and we've also got the podcast page at www.chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. And feel free to send us an email. We always love getting feedback on the show. Uh, Some of the feedback that we've got so far has been great. It's just been so good to hear. So thank you to everyone who has gotten in touch. And the email address is podcast at chrismackey.com.au. So, Dad, I must admit I'm going to have to have a good hard think about some of this stuff because there's a few things on my to-do list that I may have been putting off for a little while and I probably don't feel like I have too many excuses anymore. So (laughs) thank you and we'll chat again next week. Look forward to it, Rowan.